The Ortho PAC, hosted by Sam Dyer. Welcome to the Ortho PAC, where we discuss up-to-date orthopedic topics for the busy clinician. I invite you to sit back and relax as I attempt to fill in the gaps between education, current events, and real-world practice. After our interview with Dr. Mallon, please keep listening for exciting news from J&J Ethicon. Welcoming today, Dr. Mallon. Dr. Mallon is the editor-in-chief of the Journal of Shoulder and Elbow Surgery. Thank you for being here, Dr. Mallon. Thank you, Sam. It's a pleasure to be here. I think there are a lot of questions our listeners would find interesting. So first up, augmentation techniques uh, beyond anchors and sutures of a massive rotator cuff tear. What are our options for that? Well, there's a lot more options now than there used to be. Around 2000 or so, I started doing augmentation of massive rotator cuff tears that you really were sort of irreparable. You really couldn't quite get them all the way together. If you did, they were hanging by a thread and you knew they were going to re-tear. So you'd supplement it with some sort of graft. There's probably hundreds of different types of grafts that are out there. I sort of settled on one called the graft jacket, which is a human cellular dermis. I I have no uh, proprietary interest in that either, so don't worry about that. Mm -hmm. Um, I tried a couple other ones, one of which was sort of famously uh, debunked and didn't work very well. I used these to supplement repairs on cuffs that I could get together that had been retorn and I, I thought needed more support. And I also used them to kind of bridge the gap on really big tears where I just couldn't get them together. And, you know, that's uh, become a very popular, you know, method of, uh, you know, treating some of these big tears. Now, a lot of people have gone to a thing called a superior capsular reconstruction mm-hmm. where they don't even try to repair the really big tears as much. They just bridge the gap in the tear with uh, some sort of graft, either graft jacket or another type, you know, because again, there's multiple types, human, animal, various complex molecular things that you can use. And in the superior capsular reconstruction, they don't try to repair the tendon they put the graft between the superior aspect of the glenoid and then attach it to the greater tuberosity, which stabilizes the shoulder better. But also then they attach the cuff to the graft. And this was actually pioneered in Japan by a surgeon there named Dr. Miata. It's had remarkable results over there. It's also had very good results over here. I don't think it's been quite as good as what he had in his initial results. But, you know, this came about right around the time I'd stopped clinical practice, so I never did any of these. It's really a very hot topic now on big rotator cuff tears. Mm-hmm. Next topic, shoulder instability. How do you make a decision on conservative versus surgical management? If you look at the history of this again, when I was a resident in the 80s, the teaching was that you operated on the second dislocation. If someone dislocated one time, you put them in a sling for a few weeks and then get them going and you didn't operate on them until they dislocated at least twice. Then, uh, again, in the late 80s and early 90s, especially at West Point, they started looking at fixing people on the first dislocation. And it looks like if you you look at this, the results are better if you fix uh, after one dislocation rather than waiting for the second one, at least in young people that's the case. Again, the West Point studies were obviously done in young people because it was all West Point cadets. Mm -hmm. It really depends how old you are. Again, is a key factor on the decision. If you're 40 years old and you dislocate your shoulder for the first time, the concern is not that you're going to keep re-dislocating. 
the concern is that when you dislocate it, you tore your rotator cuff along with it. Mm-hmm. So in that situation, a 40-year-old first-time dislocator, it's critical to get an MRI to see if the uh, rotator cuff was torn. And if it was, that's probably a fairly solid indication to fix that rotator cuff. Mm-hmm. If you're 18 or 19, very unusual to tear your rotator cuff because the tissue has a different elasticity uh, and stiffness and all. But at 18 or 19, the chance of you redislocating your shoulder is very high. Now, to add to the controversy here, if you look at European studies, the chance of you redislocating is about 60 to 70 percent. If you look at American studies, it's 90 percent. Mm-hmm. Um, so Americans have kind of, you know, pushed to operate in younger people on the first dislocation. And I, I think it's fairly well settled that a teenager or young 20s with a first-time dislocation does better if you repair it the first time. It it prevents uh, getting further joint damage by multiple dislocations. All right. Long head biceps tenodesis. It seems like a lot of post-ops that I see these days, uh, almost everybody gets one, kind of getting rid of that pain generator. What's your opinion on that? You're talking to someone who, when I was a pro golfer, had a long head biceps tenodesis when I you know, partially tore my biceps. Very common to have a tenodesis, and it doesn't have to be a tenodesis. You can do a tenotomy where you just release the tendon. If you look at studies of outcomes on how that does, most of the studies on the outcomes comparing just releasing the tendon, a tenotomy to a tenodesis, don't show any difference in functional outcome. The only difference is sometimes you get a Popeye deformity after the tenotomy, and you don't, you very rarely get that after the tenodesis. It can happen, but very rarely. Mm-hmm. The only studies that I've seen where it showed tenodesis did better than tenotomy actually came out of Duke. And I know the guy who did it, and I know he, he hates the idea of doing a tenotomy. <laughs> in terms of releasing the biceps as a pain generator, whether you release it with a tenotomy or do a tenodesis, that's very popular now. And it was very popular in the 60s and early 70s. That's when I had my surgery. Mm-hmm. In the 80s, it became uh, kind of, uh, you know, verboten. Nobody said, oh, the bicep's not important. Don't worry about it. Charlie Rockwood, who, you know, wrote the famous fracture textbook, Rockwood and Green, mm-hmm. was a big shoulder surgeon. He didn't believe in the biceps as a source of uh, uh, shoulder pain. But I think most people now believe it is a big source of shoulder pain and that people with an abnormal biceps tendon, when you look at it arthroscopically, probably do better with uh, either tenodesis or tenotomy. And and again, where you do it and how you do it, there's a lot of questions about that. I I think uh, it's fairly well settled that uh, it is a a pain generator. In, In fact, in Europe, on massive rotator cuff tears that were irreparable, and this was kind of before reverse shoulder replacements came out, one of the popular treatments that was popularized in France was just to release the biceps, so just do a tenotomy. They, they did that instead of a tenodesis usually in those studies. Mm-hmm. Um, but they just tried to get rid of it because they thought it was a major pain generator in people with big rotator cuff tears. And, and the guy I did my fellowship with, Richard Hawkins, is actually a big proponent of that. He, he believes that very much so. Mm-hmm. Can you just give a breakdown of total shoulders, hemi versus reverse shoulders, and when the decision point is? The indication for a hemiarthroplasty in the shoulder is very limited anymore. In someone where you're doing it for chronic osteoarthritis or an arthritic condition, almost every study shows that if you do a total shoulder where you replace the glenoid as well as the humeral head, 
it does better than if you just do a hemiarthroplasty. So you, you really shouldn't do it in that situation. We used to do it occasionally in younger people, but even in younger people, we've shown that it does better if you do total shoulders. Mm-hmm. So then the question becomes, do you do a total or do you do a reverse? The indication for reverse when it first came out was you had to be 70, sedentary, and pseudo-paralytic, meaning you had to be older, uh, you weren't very active, and you couldn't move your arm very well. There's some controversial definitions of what pseudo-paralytic is, but basically I used to say if you couldn't raise your arm actively to 90 degrees or higher, that was where you would do it. Those indications have opened up over the years. The reverse shoulder we were worried about becoming very unstable and needing a lot of revisions early, but turns out that has not been the case. So people push the envelope on those indications. We now do it in uh, a lot of people that are younger than 70 and also do it in people that don't have a massive rotator cuff tear but are just very older and they, they want to get all their motion out of it and all they want is pain relief with instability. Mm-hmm. Actually, reverse shoulder is now done more in the United States than the anatomic shoulders are. The indications have really opened up. Mm-hmm. What do you think about subscapularis repair in a shoulder arthroplasty? You're referring to reverse total shoulder replacement. Mm-hmm. And here the question of whether or not to do a uh, subscapularis repair is a little controversial. Mm-hmm. Again, referring back to my fellowship, Richard Hawkins, before his retirement, was a big proponent that you didn't need to repair the subscap and it didn't matter. And he actually wrote articles with his fellows uh, that were published saying the results were the same, whether it was repaired or not. There have been several comparison studies showing that it doesn't matter if you repair it or if you don't, but there's also been a few studies saying that if you repair it, it does better. So again, it's one of those controversial things. It's really not settled. I tended to not repair it. First of all, repairing the subscap on some of those is really hard to do um, because there's not much subscap there a lot of times. Mm -hmm. And secondly, you're pushing the humeral shaft and humeral, you know, proximal humerus way lateral, and it's hard to get the subscap over to that. Mm-hmm. Technically, that repair can be difficult, but going along with what Hawk always uh, said at our meetings, it never bothered me if I couldn't repair it, and I didn't see any problems with it when I didn't repair it. Mm-hmm. What about anchors? I've read, you know, some people like knots and some people like knotless anchors. What's the the difference? Can you explain that for us? I never use knotless anchors. I always tied knots. It just just kind of gives you more more comfort when you can go and feel that thing cinch down, right? Yeah, it does. And tying arthroscopic knots when we first started doing it in the mid '90s was again one of those technical things that everybody thought oh, this is really tricky. But you know, after you learn to do it, you realize that. Not only is it not very hard to do, you can actually tie a better knot with an arthroscope and knot pushers than you can with your fingers because pulp of your finger when you push down is soft and you don't get the knot down quite as tight as you do mm-hmm. with a metal knot pusher. In fact, you can you can over-tighten that knot with a knot pusher. You can push it right through the tendon if you're not careful in, in bad tissue. So I always, I always did knotted mm-hmm. suture anchors. There's been some trend to use knotless by some guys that I, they say, well, it's easier. And, and the other concern is in instability procedures, knotted anchors are always a permanent suture material, usually ethabond or mersaline or some variant of that. Those knots are fairly close to the articular surface on the glenoid, and there's some thought that the, these can actually cause damage to the uh, humeral head. And especially there was one type of the suture that people used for a while called panacryl, that did cause damage to the humeral head, and it's not used anymore. Mm-hmm. 
you know, some of the impetus for using knotless anchors came from things like that. But I think most people use knotted anchors uh, who do a lot of arthroscopy. It's not really a big deal to tie the knots. Mm-hmm. Well, Dr. Mallon, this is all great information, and I really appreciate you sharing your thoughts. And I, I wanted to conclude with offering up some case studies. First case, uh, first-time dislocation on a high school senior tied in who's pursuing a full scholarship to college. Would you repair or wait and see how he does? I'd absolutely repair that. The The risk of re-dislocating uh, goes up the younger you are. It also goes up in people who do contact sports like uh, football, ice hockey, rugby, things like that, even basketball a little bit. 18-year-old, you know, high school player playing football. I think today, I think almost most sports medicine or shoulder elbow doctors would uh, do a reconstruction on that. Mm-hmm. That's important because there's a lot of folks that think, you know, first-time dislocation, let's rehab it and everything. But when you get to this point, uh, really need to think uh, shoulder surgery. So make sure you ask your shoulder doctors about that, our PAs and NPs that are listening. Next case, a 40-year-old healthy active patient who has developed post-traumatic glenohumeral joint osteoarthritis after several recurring dislocations uh, dating all the way back to their teenage years. Arthroscopy, arthroplasty, stability versus stiffness. How do you make a decision on how to treat this? That's a really hard question, and it really depends on how bad the arthritis is and how bad their instability is. Now, once they get arthritis from the instability, they most likely will have less instability. The arthritis is sort of forming to keep them stable and in response to the continued trauma to the joint. So once they get bad enough arthritis, uh, if it's really affecting their lives and they're failing non-steroidal medication, they've failed maybe an injection or two, um, either with you know maybe a cortisone injection or hyaluronic acid injections or things like that. Mm-hmm. If they failed all that, then I think the indication there would be for an arthroplasty. And, and the concern with an arthroplasty is, is this going to be unstable? And it can be, unfortunately. But in a 40-year-old, you would do an anatomic arthroplasty. You wouldn't do a reverse uh, in that person, at least initially. If it became unstable, a reverse would be an option. But I, I think almost everybody would do an anatomic and try to tighten up the joint as you're repairing uh, things. Next case, an active 70-year-old with an unstable proximal humerus fracture. Do you repair or replace? And if an arthroplasty, is it a hemi, a total, reverse, and why would you choose that? Active 70-year-old with an unstable proximal humerus fracture, you really would have to see the x-rays on that. Mm -hmm. First of all, if you look at the studies on this, almost nothing that we do surgically shows better the results than conservative treatment, just putting them in a sling for a few weeks and starting motion. Mm -hmm. Now, that's true of all cases in general. There are certainly cases that you look at it and the joint is so badly destroyed or displaced that you go, yeah, we got to do something with this. I think there's less and less indications anymore for ORIF uh, to repair it. Because, again, they tend to do pretty well if you do non-operative treatment on those. And if it's bad enough that you need to do something, I think I would lean towards an arthroplasty. Mm -hmm. Now, as far as an arthroplasty goes, do you do uh, a hemi, a total shoulder, or a reverse total shoulder? I think you can uh, take out an anatomic total shoulder. I don't think anyone would do that anymore. Through my career... 
I did uh, hemiarthroplasties for this, and mine did fairly well. The problem is that if the tuberosities don't heal, they don't get much motion and uh, tend to do fairly poorly. Done well, I think you can get the tuberosities to heal most of the time. So it, I think whether you do a hemiarthroplasty and try to repair the tuberosities or you go right to a reverse depends on the age of the patient. In a 70-year-old, any more with what the studies are showing, I probably would lean to doing the reverse. Mm-hmm. But if you're younger, if it's a 50-year-old patient with a badly displaced fracture, I might still do a hemi. Well, here's the difference between the hemiarthroplasty. A good result with a hemiarthroplasty is better than a good result with a uh, reverse total shoulder. However, a bad result with a hemiarthroplasty is much worse than a bad result with a reverse total shoulder. So people have sort of opted for the thing in the middle, which is the reverse total uh, shoulder in most cases. It's also much easier to do for people who don't do this uh, that often. So that's the trend to go to a reverse. And again, in this 70-year-old, I think that's what I'd do if, it, if I thought the x-ray said it needed to be fixed. Awesome. All right, Dr. Mallon, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. Okay, thank you, Sam. My next guest, Rich Merklinger, is the Vice President of Global Education Solutions for Ethicon J&J. We recently had a chance to discuss the company's commitment to PAs and the launch of a dedicated PA page. I asked Rich why the focus on PAs, and here's what he had to say. This group for us at Ethicon you know, is one that has increasing responsibility in and out of the operating room. We've heard from some that there are limited hands-on training opportunities. And what we've come to realize is that the PA is playing a critical role across the patient care continuum. And as it relates to some of the devices that we bring to market specifically around wound closure and surgical closure are the ones that PAs are very interested in learning more about because a lot of times those latest and greatest techniques in, let's say, wound closure are the ones that the patient ultimately sees and ultimately remembers An industry leader in wound closure, J&J Ethicon is also a partner with PAOS in providing quality training for PAs in orthopedics. Check out the new PA page on jnjinstitute.com with many helpful resources on wound closure and education, as well as the full interview with Rich. The direct link is available on the PAOS podcast page. Thank you for joining the OrthoPAC podcast. Physician Assistance in Orthopedic Surgery is a professional organization dedicated to providing common direction for PAs in orthopedics. Learn more about membership at paos.org.